The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. Riddle me this, Batman. When is a Christmas story not a Christmas story? Die Hard is a Christmas film, of that there is no argument. John McClane is going home for Christmas. The Nakatomi Plaza is hit at its Christmas party. The score is full of Christmas songs. Don't you have any Christmas music? This is Christmas music. You remember that line. Lethal Weapon and Iron Man 3, for example, are simply set at Christmas. First Blood, probably the same. Not Die Hard. The trappings of Christmas are in those other films, for sure, but they're not a Christmas story. Peter Parker's Spider-Man issue 37 isn't a Christmas story. It is, however, exceptionally good. And that's something it shares with many of writer Paul Jenkins' Spider-Man stories. Jenkins' run on the Spider-Man titles began around 1999 with a three-part story in the short-lived anthology title Web Spinners. Despite working on Spider-Man for nearly six years, his run often feels overshadowed by the concurrent run on Amazing Spider-Man by screenwriter Joe Michael Straczynski. This is a shame as Jenkins, alongside numerous artists, but primarily Mark Buckingham and Humberto Ramos, created some truly scrumptious Spider-Man stories. Jenkins worked across two main Spider-titles, Peter Parker and Spectacular Spider-Man. But his work on Peter Parker is my preferred run. This is because the Peter Parker run generally contains art by Mark Buckingham, who has a beautifully clean art style. And the stories in this run tend to be one or two-parters, very rarely more than that. By the time Jenkins was switched over to Spectacular Spider-Man, editorial mandates meant he was swept up by the dictate that the stories had to be five or six issues to better fit that trade paperback. The Venom story, The Hunger, or the Dr. Octopus story, Countdown, which also has the distinction of being out at the same time as Spider-Man 2, ticking two of those let's-grab-em-by-the-throat boxes, also fit this mould. The second half of Jenkins's run, in Spectacular, is also caught up in the ongoing narrative of the larger Marvel Universe, with issues linking to the Avengers story Disassembled. Which brings me, circling back round, to Peter Parker Spider-Man issue 37, which isn't a Christmas story, but does have snow in it. Snow Day was written by Paul Jenkins, with art by Mark Buckingham and Wayne Foucher. It came out in late November 2001. Snow Day is a unique story. Yes, there's a supervillain. Yes, 
there's some incident, but mostly this is a comedy issue. More than that, though, it's a comedy issue that's actually funny, genuinely funny, laugh out loud funny. Jenkins managed to capture Peter's off-kilter sense of humour like no other in his run, and some of the moments of humour that really rang true are linked to Peter's offbeat sensibilities. But he really did complete humour issues, did Jenkins. He normally wrote heartfelt stories that had funny bits in them. This is a flat-out comedy story. Mark Buckingham's lovely art opens the issue. Beautiful shots of a snow-covered New York as Peter narrates, ruminating on what makes a hero. It's a quiet moment with which to open the story. We move across the city and end up at the Empire State Building, where our hero sits, covered in snow, freezing his webs off. His left boot is ripped open for reasons we never discover. We flash back to earlier, where we see Peter was staying in his warm bed due to school being called off on account of snow. He's not a perpetual student. At this point, Peter is working at Forest Hills High School as a science teacher. This was also before the narrative device of starting the story, then flashing back to show how the protagonist got to where he is, became a tedious cliché. Aunt May then phones Peter for a hysterically funny scene where she pretty much ignores everything Peter says. She wants Peter to pop over to shovel her drive, but really you get the impression she wants Peter's company. Peter and May's dialogue is great here and Buckingham proves once again to be as adept at facial expressions as he hears landscapes. Peter dons his Spider-Man togs, musing that he once wore a woolen costume but he made him itch and sweat, so he abandoned it. That particular story was presumably in between issues, because I don't remember when that happened. Not saying it didn't, just saying I don't remember it. Spider-Man is also unlucky, and that he webs a flagpole containing black ice. He flops unceremonially to the ground. Whilst on the ground, Spider-Man encounters some kids building snowmen. Their respect is palpable, as they chuck a snowball in his face. It's a testament to Jenkins' talents and Buckingham's art that this story is as engaging as it is when we consider bugger all has happened. We've had some snow, some banter, some shenanigans. But once again we see that when Marvel is at its best they have such good characters that a lack of something as trivial as an actual story doesn't matter. We're engaged, entertained long before the vulture shows up. But, show up, the vulture does, back to his old tricks, robbing diamond exchanges. A number of wonderful pages follow, with the vulture and Spider-Man chucking out that rat-a-tat-tat, back-and-forth dialogue so beloved of Maddie and David, with our hero getting further and further under the vulture's skin, with his wisecracks and gags, even though the vulture is pretty much kicking his ass. Spidey rips open the vulture's sack, exposing his stolen baubles to the world. Which sounds painful. The stolen goods fall to the floor and disappear into the snow. Someone is getting very lucky when the big thaw hits. The vulture finally snaps. He tells Spider-Man he has half an hour 
at which point they will meet for the final confrontation, aptly at the location of the first battle. And so, we cut to half an hour later. Spider-Man waits at the Empire State Building, which catches us up with the beginning of the story. The Vulture shows up, stylishly late, telling Spider-Man that the first actual fight was at the Chrysler Building, you nincompoop! I think you'll find, he said, pushing his glasses up his nose, that they are both wrong. The actual first fight between Spider-Man and the Vulture, as portrayed back in Amazing Spider-Man issue 2, was on a nondescript rooftop in the heart of Manhattan. Honestly, I'd be surprised if either one of them remembered that, or the specific location. It's hardly relevant. The Vulture, finally fed up to the back teeth with Spider-Man, pulls out an Uzi submachine gun and points it straight at Spider-Man's face. The Vulture is done. No more games. He's just going to shoot Spider-Man and be done with it, finally and forever, once and for all. And so Spider-Man asks for a last request, which of course he does, because he's Spider-Man. And the Vulture is genuinely stunned by Spider-Man's moxie. And, you know, you would be. This is how Spider-Man operates. He he finagles into people's minds. He gets under their skin with his, his insouciant attitude. This isn't an Austin Powers movie, the Vulture tells Spider-Man. It's a genuinely funny moment. However, before the Vulture can pull the trigger, the Human Torch blazes into action, barrels into the Vulture, and sets one of the Vulture's wings aflame. The Vulture spirals around, trying to maintain his flight, whilst also simultaneously using his other wing to put out the fire on his left wing. To be fair, this scene was the only bum note in the issue. The Vulture isn't plummeting, only one wing's on fire, so he's maintaining some semblance of control, but the Torch and Spider-Man aren't in any rush to save him. Now, I don't think for a second they let him die, but a bit more clarity here would have been appreciated. Calling in the Torch was cute. Spider-Man and the Torch were fast friends at this point, so it works, and establishes that Spider-Man's no dummy. Just showing up to meet the Vulture in what was clearly a trap would have been silly. Spider-Man's frequently silly, but he's not stupid. Presumably, Spider-Man went to get the torch in that half hour that the Vulture went to get the gun, you know, that we didn't see. Jenkins doesn't actually elaborate on that, which I liked. He just leaves it to the audience to go, well, there's a half hour gap in the story, though, where, you know, the Vulture went off to get the gun from wherever the Vulture got that gun from, and Spidey went over to the Baxter building and said, hey, Johnny, you busy? The issue closes with Peter arriving at May's and him shoveling her drive. May pelts Peter with a snowball. The end. This is a wonderful low-key issue, which is not the same as an issue that features Loki. The dialogue and situations are all played for fun, and most of them are actually funny. A humorous issue can end up with snow all over its face, but Jenkins' canny dialogue and Buckingham's beautiful art carry the day. So the only person who ends up wet is Peter Parker. Paul Jenkins' run on Spider-Man deserves an omnibus or deluxe trade paperback treatment, as it seems criminally undervalued. And Peter Parker issue 37 is typical of the kinds of stories Paul Jenkins and Mark Buckingham were doing at this time. 
More than any other writer of the era, Jenkins eschewed bombast, instead penning sensitive, intimate, beautiful stories that emphasised character whilst nailing Peter's acerbic and inappropriate sense of humour. Moreover, in Buckingham, Jenkins had an artist who could draw the funny moments as well as the action beats, with some gags sold purely on Buckingham's way with a facial expression. Snow Day is a story where nothing really happens, but it happens in such an entertaining way that we don't care. We're just glad to have been along for the ride. It's a Christmas story that isn't. A Christmas story is a vibe, a feeling. It's like grease. makes you feel good. Snow Day isn't a Christmas story. But it does make you feel good. And that's good enough for me. Here we come Walking down the street We get funniest looks from Everyone we meet Hey, hey, we're the monkeys And people say we monkey around But we're too busy singing To put anybody down We're just trying to be friendly I come and watch singing play We're the young generation And we got something to say Just before I put this episode to bed, news broke of the death of monkey Mike Nesmith. I've not really talked about the monkeys much, but I love the monkeys. I've always liked the monkeys. I remember seeing the monkeys television show when it was rescreened on the BBC in the early 1980s, maybe 1981, 82. And I remember being instantly endeared to these four lovable, almost mop tops. They weren't the Beatles, but they kind of wanted to be. And that was kind of inspirational in its own way, that they wanted to emulate the success of a band that they had seen. To not so much celebrate, but to perhaps rekindle that joy of the old Monkeys TV show, I did some Google fooing, and I found that the everreliablearchive.org had every single episode of the show, if you knew where to look. This being Christmas... I watched the Christmas episode, appropriately entitled The Christmas Show. The monkeys were big on esoteric titles, as you guess. The Christmas Show is kind of an inverted Christmas carol. The monkeys are hired by a rich socialite to look after their child, played by the monster's Butch Patrick. And during the course of the show, they realise that said child may have a lot of money and may have a, a lot of possessions but he doesn't understand Christmas. He doesn't understand what the Christmas spirit is because he's never really been shown love or tenderness from his family. And he learns love and tenderness from the monkeys who have no money but have an overabundance of love and caring and tenderness. The episode is generally an awful lot of fun. There's a ramshackle approach to it that I'd forgotten. Apparently the monkeys were encouraged to just riff on the script and go off and ad lib. And this shows in the finished product. I've spent a lot of time recently covering Moonlighting and Moonlighting doesn't exist without the monkeys. 
the monkeys regularly spoke to the audience. They broke the fourth wall. They looked directly down the camera. Mike Nesmith particularly would address the audience when a gag was particularly cringeworthy. This episode ends in exactly the same way as the moonlighting episode Twas the episode before Christmas, with Davy Jones looking directly into the camera, inviting everybody who works on the show in front of the camera to say happy holidays to their family. There's even a gag in the middle of it where someone says, how did he get here? And Davy replies, well, he just entered the lock, came through the door, and here's the set. There's a lot of fourth wall breaking going on in the monkeys that was very appreciative. Butch Patrick is relatively unrecognisable from the Munsters, which actually shows that the kid had range as an actor, and it seems a shame that he was typecast in many ways. It's also interesting to look and think about that, and an awful lot of these 60s actors were typecast. Adam West has talked about it, the Star Trek guys have talked about it. And even though it's ramshackle, the plot does have a beginning and a middle and an end. When Butch Patrick's character leaves the monkeys behind and says, I've had enough of this sentimentality, I'm done with this. It's You're not explaining what Christmas is to me beyond some sentimental goop. But then when he's away from them, he recognises that the time he spent with them has made him a better person. And he misses them. He misses the camaraderie. He misses that they showed him love and curing and tenderness and so he invites them back and we end up with a ramshackle party at the end it was actually a really sweet and tender episode it doesn't really focus on the monkeys so much none of the the regulars peter talk davy jones mickey delens or the late mike nesmith are focused upon in any great deal they all get a line or a gag or two or in Talk's case, a, a visual gag moment. Um, but it did make me laugh out loud once or twice because it, it's not like any other sitcom of its era. It is its era. Of its era, it is off the wall. It's anything goes. It's not shot like a traditional 60s sitcom. The setup isn't that of a traditional 60s sitcom, although the initial impetus for the story may very well have been something they could have played out on i don't know the partridge family or whatever the way the monkeys go with it is is quite frankly bizarre but like i say this show is 55 years old this episode was originally heard in 1967 i think i think there are moments that genuinely made me laugh davy's gag about well he just came on the set made me smile and the cutaways which family guy has, has ripped off quite an awful lot the cutaway gags to peter talks presents from last christmas um are genuinely funny there's some genuinely funny moments in it there's a there's a goofiness to it a playfulness that obviously not being around in the 60s i don't know if that was a reaction to the seriousness of the times the politically charged nature of what was going on but it was it was great. It was it was a genuinely entertaining episode. And there was a moment where it was it was quite sad to watch now to realise that seventy-five percent of them are no longer with us. And they've all died relatively young. You know, they weren't old by what we consider old by today's standards. Um and only Mickey Delens is left. 
So there was a there was a tinge of sadness to it, but it was nice to rekindle and reconnect. It's probably a better word with the monkeys, particularly with the Christmas episode at this time of year. And it's it's beautiful. And it closes with a rendition of a song called Ryu Richu, which is just the four boys singing a cappella um, around um, a, a candle. Um, it's a, a 16th century Spanish Valencio, apparently. I've not done any research for this. I just typed that in. Um, and I've not scripted this bit. This is all off the cuff. So, But the harmonies, the harmonies are every bit as good as the Beach Boys. You know, the people that say the monkeys weren't talented haven't watched the show and don't know what they're talking about, quite frankly. I mean, I know that Mickey DeLenza said essentially there were two actors playing musicians and two musicians pretending they could act who became a real band against all odds. Because that goes into that 60s thing again. Did, did Could people not differentiate between fantasy and reality? In the 60s, what was different about the 60s that people didn't understand or couldn't separate what was going on on TV from reality? Delenza said in many interviews he was auditioning for the role of a drummer, but he didn't mean he could drum. He learned to drum. Mike Nesmith taught him how to drum. And certainly over the years, I know Nesmith was the most vocal about his, his dissatisfaction with where the show went in particular with relation to the control over the music. He was a talented musician, as was Peter Talk. There was a feeling that maybe they would have been allowed to contribute more to the musical direction of the show. But, you know, didn't happen. Anyway, that was that was a lovely little side note to go and visit the monkeys and celebrate the lives, not only of Mike Nesmith, but of the late Davy Jones and Peter Talk. <laughs> Okay, should we look at the email sack for this very day? I asked, you answered, because you clearly did not want me performing another old 60s song to pad out the running time of the episode. You all sent me email, which was very, very delightful, and I'm very, very happy that you did so. Robert Ludwig emailed in. Hello, Andy. Hello. I have been enjoying your episodes about moonlighting. So far, I am through the first two of them. I remember liking this show mainly for Bruce Willis's crazy character. I watched this with my mum weekly, at least for the first three seasons. Then, with me getting older, having more to do during the evenings, having two younger sisters with activities, and the show schedule, I only caught some of seasons four and five. More of season four than five, I would guess. Anyway, a couple of things that I remember. Number one, Bruce Willis is her. I remember I wanted my her style like this, probably seasons two or three when I was 12 or 13. Without the receding her line, I remember taking a picture to the barber shop, and they did their best. It didn't last long. You probably couldn't have your her like that, dude, because by season three, it was, it was there was some definite her piecery going on, I think. Or certainly there was some spray paint happening. Number two, the moonlighting soundtrack. I had that on cassette. Got it for Christmas on my birthday one year. I listened to it a lot. I may still have my copy somewhere in my basement. Should go look and then find a cassette player. Yeah, because it ain't on Spotify, dude. I had a look. In the email section, you talked about getting the Mike Grell James Bond issues. I have an autographed copy of number two. Ooh, that's cool. In 2015, Mike Grell was at Wizard World Comic Show in Des Moines, Iowa. 
Des Moines. Do I say that right? Des Moines, Iowa. Iowa. <laughs> there was a comic dealer near him that had Mike Grell comics in a special box. Tried to take advantage of location to sell some. It worked. I picked up a couple of books, including the James Bond one. I didn't see any more of the James Bond issues because I would have picked them up. More for the James Bond than for Mike Grell, to be honest. But when I got the issue autographed, he said something along the lines that somebody with the Bond production said it would have made a good movie. Thanks again for putting out your shows. Have a nice day, Robert Ludwig, Nevada. You're very welcome, Robert. Uh, I may dig those three out and do a show about them. I think that may be... Um, I always think of Star Trek when I will do a special on you. Uh, thank you, thank you, Rob. Uh, from one Rob to another Rob. Rob McCarthy. Hey, Andy. Yes, Moonlighting did the Honeymooners as the Honeymooners, and you, being a decent human being, would hate it. I've never seen the Honeymooners. I did do some some research. I did a lot of research on the Moonlighting shows, as opposed to this one where I did no. Um, and apparently, the Honeymooners was shown in the UK in like the late fifties, and then never seen again until the BBC screened a couple of episodes late night in the nineties. Never saw it. Number two, Heart to Heart would be interesting to remake. How do you do that now that no one loves the rich? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you're sure that not all rich people are scum. I don't know. Number three, Bruce Willis's album is more interesting than good. He plays the harmonica like a TV star, you see. A harmonica has a set key to play in, and you need a harmonica. And he's often in the wrong bloody key, which hurts my brain. And now there's three seasons of Moonlighting I did not know about. Thanks for the plug. That comic again, howcomics.com. Um, I knew that he played harmonica because he he does play it in the show. I mean, it sounds all right to my ears, but I'm not a musician. So what do I know? Uh, P.S. put me firmly in the yes that Andy should sing more camp. Also, you should cover T.J. Hooker with Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee Lewis was in a T.J. Hooker? I can't imagine that it was good, though, to be fair. Thank you, Rob and Rob. Uh, our next email is from Professor Allen. Hello, Professor Allen. Andy, great work on the Moonlighting episodes. Thank you very much. As you said, that show was so perfect for a while. Such a shame it all went away so quickly. And also a shame that it is evidently unavailable for streaming. Yeah, Disney, sort that out, eh? You know, get off your ass and do something about it. It was so good, and as you said, so influential, that it's also a shame, so many shames about this programme, that it seems destined to disappear down the memory hole. If I haven't said that already, that's a real shame. Enjoy the holidays and keep up the good work, Professor Allen, the relatively geeky podcast network, Darkness to Light. Yeah, it's a it's a shame and no mistake. Thank you, Professor Allen. Our other email tonight is from Matt Prather. Hello, Matt. Hey, Andrew. Moonlighting is one of the shows I kind of slept on back when it was on. Well, it was 35 years ago, so if you're like 35 and under, you're probably not even going to know what it is. I had a sense of it, but never watched it. The fact I was working a couple of jobs back then didn't help. Oh, well, if you were working a couple of jobs, then you're over 35. Furthermore, a friend of mine bought into the cult of Bruce Willis and went so far as to replace good, wholesome alcohol with Barty's and James wine coolers at parties based on old Bruno being a B&J spokesman, which is different to being a BJ spokesman. So I put some distance between myself and said programme. That being said, your enjoyment with your rewatch has me considering giving the show a chance. I mean, the show is not to blame for my friend being an asshat. Thanks again and keep up the great work, Matt Prather. <laughs> okay. P.S. I'm six foot five and 320 pounds. It takes a lot of wine coolers to get a shaved ape looking asshole like myself buzzed. I'm still more than a little put out about it. I may smack said friend upside the head next time we cross paths. Stupid wine coolers. 
<laughs> that sounded very Homer Simpson. <laughs> Stupid wine coolers. Okay, that's it. That's uh, that's the end of the show. That's the end of the Christmas show. It's probably the end of the year, my good friends. Um, take care. I know Omnicron is upon us, but it, it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. You know, keep thinking that. And uh, we'll see you all in the new year with more of this type of stuff. If this type of stuff is your type of stuff. You can email, like Matt, Professor Allen, and the two Robs, which could be a sitcom, I guess, uh, at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. If you're lucky and you're listening to this when it comes out, Christmas week 2021, there should be some new Hey Kids comics coming your way. No promises, Mr. Scott, but the signs are looking good. Okay, take care. The dog's made an appearance, which is normally a sign that we're shutting up shop and i'll see you all again real soon have a good christmas whatever you celebrate wherever you celebrate it however you choose to do it have a good time and we'll see you all again real soon we'll close out the show with the monkey's rendition of rio rio chua as a tribute to mike nesmith peter talk and davy jones goodbye rio rio chula guadarivera Dios cuando el lobo de nuestra cordera. Dios cuando el lobo de nuestra cordera. Riu, riu, shiula, guadaribera. Dios cuando el lobo de nuestra cordera. Dios cuando el lobo de nuestra cordera. El lobo rabioso la quiso morder, mas Dios poderoso la supo defender. Quiso le hacer que no pudiese pecar, ya no original es tu virgen no tuviera. Riu, riu, shiu, la guadaribera. Dios cuando, Dios cuando el lobo de nuestra cordera. Dios cuando, Dios cuando el lobo de nuestra cordera. Esta que es nacido es el gran monarca, Cristo patriarca de carne vestido, y han nos redimido con serse chiquito, aunque infinito, finito se hiciera. Riu, riu, shiu, la guada rivera. Dios cuando, Dios cuando el lobo de nuestra cordera. Dios cuadro, Dios cuadro, el lobo de nuestra cordera.